What we're dealing with today in our text are the after effects of the reality of Jesus. All too often when evangelicals present the gospel, it's all about being happy now, being fulfilled now, being successful now, having your happily ever after now. And in reality, we all want to believe that the salvation of the Lord will bring about a happily ever after life here in this world. To be sure, the effects of the gospel when they produce salvation does bring about a happily ever after life. But that's not to say that being a child of God means that God is going to make your life easy or nice or comfortable. In fact, very often it is those that are his that suffer the most in this life. And not just at the hands of the unregenerate, but also through adversity, through pain, and through suffering. In our lives, when we suffer well, we bring glory to God as we profess that this world is not our home that we are living for the real happily ever after, that comes when we enter into life, after we enter into glory. There's also within our text today a reminder of the importance of the word of God ruling over our life, one that will become clear as we begin to walk through the text. Listen for it. See if you can spot it and then allow it to have its effects on your life. Verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, Is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Once again, don't forget that this is not make-believe. This is an actual account of conversations that actually took place between actual people that actually lived. For the parents of this man being called into the offices of the local Pharisees was not something that they wanted to have happen, happen because nothing good ever came of that. And the reason that they were called in was because the Pharisees didn't believe that this man was actually born blind. They thought that Jesus was performing a Benny Hinn routine, setting up a make-believe healing, staging a miracle. So his parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus was the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now, if you're a parent, you know how the hearts of these parents would have been broken when their son was born, seemingly healthy and perfect but then was found to be blind. There was nothing that they could do for him. 
they live with this reality. They were there at every disappointment in his life. Their hearts were heavy laden with the reality of what their son's life had become. And this is what makes this account so startling. This same son that was born blind, who had suffered his entire life because of it, who had never been able to see the face of his mother ever before, that same son now stood before them seeing. And these parents were so overwhelmed by this reality that they threw their son under the bus and then backed the bus up over him again, all because they feared the Pharisees, and for good reason, because there's nothing in our life, in our reality, that is the same as being thrown out of the synagogue. It's not being placed under church discipline. It's not being thrown in jail. It was a total ostracization of everything in your life. They wouldn't have been allowed to attend local church services. To most evangelicals today, that would mean nothing. But they would also not be allowed to do business with anyone within the community. They would be social outcasts. They would be shunned by everyone. They would lose everything. And this was only the human part of the punishment that could and was inflicted on those who were deemed heretics by the religious establishment. But those rules, those laws, were the man-made ones. But there were some that came from God. Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7. This is what he said. If there is found in your midst, in any of your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, by transgressing his covenant, or has gone and served other gods and worshipped then, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the heavenly host, which I have not commanded, and if it is told you, and you have heard of it, then you shall inquire thoroughly. Behold, if it is true, and that thing is certain that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates, that is, the man or the woman, and you shall stone them to death. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And the hand of the witness shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. The death sentence not only applied to the one who was deemed a heretic, but also to anyone who supported that person, which is why those that first questioned this blind man brought him to the officials which is why the parents of this once blind man acted in the manner in which they did. This is what the parents of that once blind man was now facing. And Jesus knew it. Before he told his disciples that it was neither him nor his parents who had sinned. He knew what he was doing and what the ramifications of his actions would be when he healed this blind man. None of it was an unintended consequence of a good deed, 
an unthinkable byproduct of Jesus trying to do the right thing. He knew what he was doing. He knew what that division was going to be because of what he did. And because of the deflection of the parents back onto the son, the son who had endured a life of blindness was once again brought back before these officials. Verse 24, For the second time they called the man who had been blind and, and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. The statement made by these men to this once blind man is simply amazing. It's the same thing that Joshua said to Achan when he had sinned against God by disobeying him. Here, however, they said, give glory to God. And this man, who is God, is a sinner. He's not of God. He is everything that God is not. They make a statement that it's impossible to answer. It's like being asked if you still beat your wife. You can't answer that question without impugning your character. And he could not answer their question without impugning the character of God. So he answered, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, though, I was blind and now I see. His answer to these men is a great one. One that they can't argue against. One that they can't bring a witness against. He gives them his testimony. He had heard Jesus say that him being born blind was in order that the works of God could be seen. And here he highlighted that work of God. I was blind and now I see. Here are my parents who are witnesses of my entire life being one of blindness. Here are the masses of people who know me, who have seen me begging my whole life who have seen me as a blind man. And here I stand seeing you, seeing everything for the first time. There is power in your testimony. No matter what your testimony is, if you have had your heart regenerated, then your testimony is one of power, simply because it's of God. And being able to give your testimony in a clear, succinct manner like this man has just done is important if you desire to have the works of God shown in your life. This is why one of the requirements for membership here is a written testimony. You may have thought that this was a silly thing. Why do I need to write a one-page written testimony? You may have thought that it was done in order to prove that you were saved. But it was done for one reason, and to have two things accomplished. The reason is for you to be able to bring glory to God through the telling of how he transformed you from darkness to light. And the two things that were desired to be accomplished are to allow others to glory at the works that God has done in your life and to let these who are your family members know something about you. You should be able to succinctly, clearly, and accurately give your testimony. Not a never-ending diatribe on everything in your life. Not a gory retelling of how bad your sin was. And not a shell of a story either. 
I wasn't saved, and then I was. None of these things bring glory to God. But there is a problem, however, about your testimony. Many times, if you ask an evangelical what the gospel is, they'll give you their testimony. That is not the gospel. And what this man has given to these officials was not the gospel. It was a testimony of the works of God in his life. A powerful one, a truthful one, one that spoke to the power of Christ, the power to overcome the afflictions and realities of this life, but it wasn't the gospel. So they said to him, what did he do? How did he open your eyes? As the Pharisees have already said, they knew that this man, they wouldn't even use his name, was a sinner. He was a false prophet. He was the original Benny Hinn. The fact that the formerly blind man was now seeing was not for them proof that Jesus was from God. And they were right in being cautious about him because of this miracle. And the reason for this is because of the, the supremacy of Scripture in the life of the sons of God. I read to you earlier out of Deuteronomy what the punishment for a false prophet was, as mandated by God. That was chapter 17. But listen to these verses from chapter 13 of Deuteronomy. 13 comes before 17. Just making sure we all knew that. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and that sign or wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after the gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for Yahweh your God is testing you to find out if you love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. What? That doesn't seem right. God's going to send false prophets among his people and allow them to do miracles, signs, wonders? Well, that's not right. How are we then supposed to know if that person is a prophet from God or not, especially when they can do signs, miracles? I mean, what if they raise people from the dead? What if they heal people? What if they can make people rich? This is where the scripture shines in importance, where the importance and supremacy of the word of God in the life of the church and believer comes into play. Deuteronomy 4 and 5 of chapter 13. You shall follow Yahweh your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments. Listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against Yahweh your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to, to, seduce, to seduce you from the way in which Yahweh your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge this evil from among you. The problem was for these men on this day lied in the fact that they themselves were false prophets. They were the ones who had supplemented the word of God with their own version of the word of God. 
Well, how did they do that? How did they create their own false god? They decided that they had to change the word of God. They needed to add to it, to make it more clear. And so they added rules and laws surrounding the word of God to explain it, as they understood it to mean at least. And then they made those rules, those laws and explanations, they placed them at the same level as the word itself. This is why these men laid the charge of blasphemy and heresy against Jesus, because he broke the fourth commandment. And for that reason was in violation of the law of God and could not be from God. And they were right about this, because this is truth. No one from God or of God can break his law and still be from God or of God. And God did give the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment is, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Exodus 20, verse 8. And this is still the truth. No one from God or of God can say that he told them to do something that is strictly forbidden in his word. And anything outside of his word is a violation of his word and his sin. This truth was at the center of the argument that Jesus made against these men. These men who claimed allegiance to God, claimed to be worshiping him, and claimed to be from him. They charged Jesus with breaking the law of God because he worked on the Sabbath day. This truth was at the center of the charges that these men laid against Jesus. That he couldn't be from God because he healed on the Sabbath. Because he made mud on the Sabbath. Because his disciples picked grain to eat on the Sabbath. He and his disciples did not remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. There's this accounting in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, where Jesus and his disciples got a scolding from the Pharisees for plucking heads of grain and eating them on the Sabbath. Here, listen to his response to them. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Did you hear the thrust of his argument? The proof that these men were wrong about the law of God? It wasn't that he was Lord of the Sabbath. That was not what he used to prove that they were not worshiping God, following God. It was the word of God that he used to do this. Have you not read? And he used the word of God to prove once again that they were sons of Satan in condemning the guiltless, the son of man, for he is Lord of the Sabbath. He instituted it. He gave it to man. And the reason that these men were wrong was that they had added to the word of God but not to 
underemphasize it, not to make it easier for people, not to make it more liberal. They added 39 rules to the fourth commandment to make it more strict, to protect God and his law. In these 39 additions, burning and extinguishing were forbidden. So if your house caught on fire on the Sabbath, you couldn't put it out. Nor could you strike a match or make fire in any way, which would include starting your vehicle. And you couldn't trap, which would be defined by hindering the freedom of any animal or insect in any way. And this would include setting an animal free that fell into a pit. And you could not knead on the Sabbath, which would include making mud from spit and dirt. They added to the word and for this reason, they did not know God. The point that I'm making may seem trivial. Seems like it's no big deal. and can't be the reason why they didn't know God. But this is not original. What they did is nothing new. It was the very first thing that the first sinners did. Those that were created, I'm sorry, those that created their own version of God. Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, 1 through 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Jesus never told Adam not to touch the fruit of that tree. Adam added that rule to God's law when he retold Eve the law of God. And by doing this, when the serpent came to Eve, desiring for her to fall, she did not stand on the word of God alone, but held up this added rule that had replaced God's law. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely won't die, for God knows that when you eat of, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took and of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So why was it such a big deal that Adam added that hedge of protection around the law of God? Why should, we, why should this be such a big deal? Why was it sinful? After all, it was added to protect his wife. It was added to bolster the importance of the law, to give it some teeth, to make it seem more weighty and important. Why was this wrong? For two reasons. The first is Deuteronomy 4.2. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh your God that I commanded you. And the second reason is by adding to the law, because Adam thought that what the Lord mandated was not clear enough, bold enough. He, Adam, placed himself on the throne of God and replaced God. 
And notice that it was this added to part that Eve led with that brought about her to see, to desire, to take. The serpent didn't die when he touched the fruit. She didn't die when she touched the fruit. These questions once again highlight the supreme importance of the word of God. This is why the word of God must reign supreme in the life of the church. In the life of the believer, it's not the same as any other word. It's not something that we are at liberty to add to or take away from. Even if we are trying to explain the word better, to make it easier to take, to make it more relevant for today, we must take the word as the word and allow it to change us, not the other way around. Thousands of years after that first Adam bomb, Moses reiterated this truth to the people of God. He said in Deuteronomy 32, 47, And when Moses had finished speaking all these things, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. But you may say, this is all Old Testament stuff. I'm a New Testament Christian. Good. Revelation 22, 18 through 20. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Yeah, but that's just what John, the revelator, revelator thought. It's not like Jesus was saying these things. It's not like he was making this statement. Well, verse 20. He who testifies to these things say, says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Wrong answer. All scripture is the inspired word of God. And whenever humans tamper with it, in changing its meaning or trying to update it to make it more relevant or culturally acceptable, we are, we have created a false God and are no longer preaching the truth. We, at that point, no longer have as our life the true word, the true God. This includes trying to make homosexuality not a sin, trying to say that homosexual unions are marriages, trying to say that there is such a thing as previent grace, trying to say that there is no such thing as predestination or election, and trying to say that humans have the freedom of the will to accept God. These are all additions and subtractions to the word of God. We should also be very careful to Call to not call sin something that the Bible doesn't call sin. You may have a personal conviction about something, about a matter, but if the word of God is not clear on it, 
then you should not be dogmatic on it either and bind the conscience or try to bind the conscience of somebody else if it's not in the word. And this is why these men miss Jesus. They weren't mistaken. They were, as Jesus has already said, liars. And they are lying about what and who they served. They claimed to know God as their father. But Jesus told them that God was not their father, that Satan was, that they were dead in their sins. And they didn't just miss Jesus as if they were busy and got distracted. They had them or had him on their radar, in their sights. They kept a close eye on him, listened to him, watched him. And because of their addition to the law of God, they told God that he was not God. They looked at the right man, saw the miracles as what they were, listened to him preach and teach and wonder. And because he broke their version of the law, that law surrounding the Sabbath, they called him a heretic. He was not of their God, of their word. This is why we, even we who claim to know Christ, must make the word supreme in our life. We don't worship this, but we worship the one who has given it to us. It is the means by which the one that has given it to us has determined to make himself known to us. And it is the means by which he has determined that we are to know who and what we are in him. Today there are men and even women who now claim to know God, to preach his word, to add to it or subtract from it. No matter why they do this, they are no different than these men on this day. They too are liars and sons and daughters of Satan and dead in their sins. This may sound harsh, judgmental, and maybe even divisive, at least to our physical, human-centered ears. But when we see God for who and what he is, then we can begin to understand why we must stand on and for his word alone and stand with him in what it says, no matter how harsh or judgmental it sounds. We must tell the truth. This is what Luther did at the Diet of Worms. He rightly stood for the word alone and against those that would add to it. This is what John Huss did, even to the point of being burned alive. He stood for the word of God. This is what William Tyndale did. He knew that it was the word that would ignite the souls of men and women alone. And he, too, died for this conviction. The word was at the center of the argument and confrontation that we are reading about today. In our account today, the first time that this once blind man was brought before the religious authorities, it was by those that knew him. He was forced to go then. But the second time that he was brought in before them, it was more than forced. He was mandated to go. 
Verse 24 tells us that he was called. They had put him in a holding cell, under guard, and then after questioning his parents, called him back in. And the first time that he was questioned, he was a bit uneasy, knowing that these guys were serious, and they held his life in their hands. But the second time would have been much more confrontational. But the interesting thing is that this once blind man is not afraid of these guys or the power that they perceive to have over him, which is proven by how he answers them. He said to them, I have told you already and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become disciples of his? The first thing he tells these men is that they're not even listening to what he's telling them. They may be hearing the words, but they aren't actually listening to what he's saying. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. When they say that they don't know where he comes from, they're not talking about his origin of birth or his parents. We know that they knew that. They were meaning if he came from God or not, which is why they used Moses as their litmus test. But the interesting thing is, is that it was Moses, a man that they are rightly saying that God spoke to, who wrote down, who wrote, who told their forefathers not to mess with the word of God. The thing that they had done, that they had supplanted with their own version of it and him. The reason that this man was now on trial, the reason that these men had an issue with Jesus was that he healed on the Sabbath, something that was strictly forbidden in their man-made rules. And he taught contrary to, to the added rules that they held that were just as important as the word of God, that they thought were equal to the word of God. And they answered this man. I'm sorry, the, the man answered why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The boldness of this man is shocking. I'm sure that it had to have been to those religious leaders as well. He, this man, who was still dressed in his beggar's clothes, who had never been educated, never been taught, who had never been in the synagogue or in the temple, he was schooling these men. And as amazing as his first statement was to these men, that one when he gave them his testimony, as powerful and undeniable as that was. Here, this statement is even more powerful, even more undeniable. Here, this man presents the gospel to these men. The gospel? I didn't hear the gospel. He told these men the truth about Jesus and about themselves. He exalted God and told these men the truth about themselves. You don't know where this man comes from? This man who has proven by his words, by his life, by his deeds, that he is 
at least from God, that he's different from you, separate from you, that God has fulfilled his promise in sending a redeemer that's walking among us, living among us. He is this Jesus. And the preaching of this gospel has its desired effects. Remember, this is not an isolated incident. The religious leaders had Jesus on their radar long enough now to have made the public proclamation that if any were his disciples, any proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ, that they would be shunned, they would be cast out. They followed him. They heard him teach and preach. They saw his miracles, his signs and wonders. And all of this led them to the correct understanding about him. He was outside of their religion. He was not as the same God that they preached, the one that they taught and worshipped. And now this beggar, who obviously must be under the spell of this heretic, is standing there in their midst, schooling them about who and what God is in presenting this man's gospel to them. So they answered him, You were born in utter sin and would teach us? And they cast him out. The fact that this previously blind man was proof enough for them that he was a cursed sinner. The fact that he was born blind, that was enough for them. So they cast him out. Out of the chambers where they were, out of the synagogue, out of the temple. But the ironic thing was, is that before this moment, he had never been allowed in those places. He had always been outside of them. There was nothing outside of stoning this man that these men could do that would make the reality of his life any different than what he's used to which is why he's being so bold in speaking to them. What are they going to do? Make me beg to live? I've done that my entire life. What are they going to do? Tell other people not to have anything to do with me? Well, that describes my entire life up to this moment. These men hold no power over him, and for this reason, he could speak boldly, honestly. Think back to those reformers that I just mentioned, those men who stood for the word, for the Lord. They all had this one thing in common with this man. They were all outside of the religious system that was trying to lord it over them. They had all been inside of it at one point, but when the Lord had transformed their lives, they could no longer be swayed by any threat of man. And even at the threat of death, that meant nothing to them. Because those men could kill the body. But that could only happen at the permission and preordained will of God. The God that held their souls and their eternal bodies in his tight, loving grasp of his hands. Back in verse 3, Jesus had responded to the question by the disciples as to whose sin had caused this man to be born blind. His answer is the foundational truth that is being revealed in this count. Neither was he born blind. He said, I'm sorry, neither was his answer. He was born blind in order that his work, the works of God may be displayed in him. And we've seen how two of these works have already been displayed in his life. 
First, by the backdrop of, backdrop of his life of this man, in that he had lived his entire life blind. No one could claim otherwise. And then secondly, they were displayed in the healing of this man. As Jesus, the creator and sustainer of all things, does something that has never been done before. He gives sight to the blind, a man born blind. And then the last verses in our text now bring us to the final and most important way in which the works of God will be displayed in his life. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, none of what has transpired in our account was a surprise to Jesus. All of this happened in his creation, in his predetermined, predestined plan. The casting out by the religious leaders was the best thing that they could have done for this man. Because if he had been allowed to remain in that false worship of that false god, he may have been gradually drawn into it. But because he was cast out, he was free from that influence. Even though he was under condemnation of man, he was not by God. This is one of those wonderful truths concerning our God. He's a God who not only sees, but also a God that hears. Jesus heard that this man had been cast out. And he's also a God that seeks and finds. But that seeking and finding is a two-edged sword. Because there are many people... Maybe most people within humanity think that they are flying underneath the radar of God. They claim ignorance of him or make a false god in their image, but they can't hide from God. Amos 9.3 says, Though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. Or Zephaniah 1.12. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. But the same sword that cuts to destruction also cuts to salvation. Ezekiel 34.11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. Ezekiel 34, 16, I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. John 4, 23, But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And Luke 19.10, For the son, has, the son of Man has come to seek and save that which, which was lost. This man's life, his entire life, from birth as a blind child to the moment that his life was transformed through the giving of sight, to the pain of having been shunned and cast aside by his parents, to the hurt and indignation that was thrown on him by those Pharisees. All of this was the Lord hearing, seeking, saving. Saints, don't be confused into thinking that an easy life 
is proof of salvation, that it's proof of the favor of God. It's not. More often than not, the Lord will use trials, adversity, hardship in his seeking to break the legs of those sheep, to bring them to the end of themselves and to the reality of him. Let us not get in between what the Lord is doing in breaking that sinner, the one that we're praying salvation for, and our desire to be kind to them. He is the great physician, and he alone knows the cure for the eternal illness that we have brought on ourselves. And very often, that cure is painful here in this life. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In love, allow the Lord to bring about pain, hurt, and adversity in that person's life, the one that you're praying for, to the point that they are broken of themselves and then can have those pains, those adversities, produce the fruit of righteousness. This man answered Jesus, verse 36. And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Here's the question of the ages. Asked by a man who the Lord has already been working in, whose life has already been used to display the works of God in, who the Lord has sought, has heard, who is the Son of Man? But he didn't ask in a philosophical way, trying to figure out if Jesus was God or not, trying to determine if he was willing to worship this God or not. This was the heart of a man who had been elected to be a son of God, to be moved from the dead to the living, from the sons of Satan to the sons of God. Who is he that I may believe in him? Already believe in God. His statements to the religious leaders proved that to be true. But believing in God and being saved by believing in Jesus are two entirely different things. The reason for this is that it's only through the Son that you can see and know the Father. He believed in God. He desired to see the Son. And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. I've said before, one limiting factor in the written word is that it can be one-dimensional. This is a great representation of this truth. We aren't given any more detail around this all-important event. This man has met his Savior face-to-face, seeing him face-to-face for the first time, and we're given three words. Lord, I believe. The reason for this can be found in the one that he believed in. This man believing, while emotionally and spiritually exhilarating for us, is secondarily, is secondary to the reality of the one that he believed in. It's told to us in this manner so that we would not allow ourselves to become emotionally driven, event driven, looking to have that 
fill us and fulfill us. God did create us with emotions, and emotions are not bad or wrong. But when our emotions are allowed to lead and direct your life, that is wrong, bad, and could even be sinful. We must master our emotions and not allow them to master us. As proof of this, hear how emotionally driven Jesus was over this encounter. He said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who see may not, or those who do not see may see, and those who may see, may, I'm sorry, those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. The last encounter between Jesus and these Pharisees highlight a spiritual truth that's still at play today. Because those that are blind physically know it. They know that they can't see. Clayton knows that he can't see color. Jesus has used this man's physical blindness to highlight a spiritual truth that represent a majority of humanity, possibly even a majority within evangelicalism. He has told these, Pharise these Pharisees, these within the church, the leaders of the church, he has already told them that they're dead in their sins, and they don't know it. They think that they are alive. And here he tells them that they think that they see, and because of this, they prove that they are in fact blind, and they don't know it. And this is why I emphasize that this thing, this thing that we call life, is not real life. In this life, most people, a majority of people, can see with their eyes. But as Christ has told us already, this life is not real life any more than that sight, the sight of the Pharisees that they had was real sight. These men were delusional in that they thought that they had sight. And people are delusional in thinking that they have life. But how can we know if we really see, if we really are in Christ, and not just profess life, but actually possess life? Once again, it's obedience to the word that is proof of salvation. Jesus told those that John told us, believed in him back in chapter 8, that if they abide in his word, that they are his disciples. This is the litmus test for those who claim Christ as their Savior. Not how many copies of the word a person owns, not the ability to enjoy their quiet time, not their desire to read the word, not what seminary or degree that they went to or have, not how well they preach or how great a heart they have for the lost or for people the desire to be ruled by the word at all cost, and then to stand for the word at all cost. And if we do this, then Christ told us we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. And whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. 
free to live under the rule of the Lord God, free to live obedient to him and his word, free from all condemnation for all eternity, and free to share in the works of God in the lives of those that he created in his image. And that work, that primary work that we must be doing because it is still light, is the preaching of, the sharing of, the gospel of Jesus Christ in the lives of all that God brings into our path. Speak to that person who claims to know the Lord, who claims to be a believer, and speak to them as if they have never heard the gospel before, because they may not have, even if they're a pastor. Tell them of the greatness of our God, of the majesty of our Lord, and then tell them the truth about who they are. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And if they are truly saved, they will once again praise God in the retelling of what they have been saved from and saved to. And if they're not, they will more often than not dismiss you and what you've told them. But there are those times that the Lord has appointed his sons to salvation. There are those times that he will allow you to be that conduit of salvation in the preaching of the gospel. And you get to witness the greatest miracle ever. A son of Satan being transformed before your very eyes to the son of God. But no matter what that dirt clod in front of you does, because that's all we are, are dirt clods, how they react, you must be doing the works of the one who sent our Savior, the light of the world, into the world as long as it's day. It's for his glory that his power might be shown in your life. It's that reason why you must obey. Now, go in confidence in the word of God. Not in yourself, in the word of God, that the word will not fail to accomplish its intended purpose. Go in the joy that it, he has called you as his own and that he is allowing you to participate in his saving ministry. Go in the radical, amazing truth that the gospel is salvation, the only salvation for man. Let's pray.